0: I had a conversation recently with Jan Wyant, and uh, one of the things she said is, you know, sometimes it's helpful when you're talking through vision to help people see the ground level of the vision. What does what transformative leadership really mean and look like and feel like? Sometimes when we think about something like transformative leadership, we're like, oh, you know, Pastor Rob's saying that I need to become a Bible study leader at church, or you know, step up and and start preaching or something along those lines. And I have to say, while that may be true for some of us, that some of us need to do those things, transformative leadership is all about the day-to-day activities of life. It's how I pray. It's how I approach work that day. It's what I do with my children in the home. It's how I conduct myself with my church family. That's really what we're getting at when we're looking at the Master's plan. Jesus wanted you to see that your pursuit of him, your following him, your discipleship to him is 24-7, 365. That's what transformative leadership is. So let me pray for us this morning as we conclude this series. We'll be moving forward next week into a different series. But I want to ask that God would help us continue along in this vision as a church. Shall we pray? Lord, I pray over each one in this room, young and old alike. I think of our seniors all the way down to the children sitting here with us today. Each one you have designed specifically and specially to be one of your transformative leaders. I believe that. I really do. I I pray that. First and foremost, we would see the makeup of a leader, that you've called us to be a leader, and then have the tunnel vision of a leader. Know that your Great Commission calls us to be disciple makers. Lord, that we would have the measure of a leader, that we would see that greatness is about, not about my own personal ambitions and success, but it's about serving others for the glory of God. Lord that we would also have the limits of the leader remembering that our our life is not structured around all of the activities that's not what makes up our life but it's the will of God it's following your will and we can do that at the relaxed pace of Jesus because Jesus said that his yoke was easy i believe that and i want to operate in those sort of rhythms lord This morning, we're going to be looking at the community of the leader, and I pray that you would open our hearts even deeper toward the community, the church. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So as we look at the community of the leader, listen closely to this statement. The ideal may be destroying your ability to appreciate the real. Let me say that again. The ideal, your perfect image of something may be destroying your ability to appreciate the real how things really are. And, and you can think of this in a lot of different areas of life. For example, let's think about work for a minute. Many of us have an ideal when it comes to work. I have a dream job, a dream boss, dream coworkers, even ideal pay. And then you show up to the real thing called your job. The pay is, meh. The boss, well, the boss expects you to pull rabbits out of magic hats a lot of times, doesn't he or she? Uh, You seem to have so many things piling up on your plate and you can never seem to get ahead. Or what about all those coworkers? You like most of them. There's just that one, though, that you could do without. You see, you've been at that place for some time. And initially... You were so excited when you landed the job, but now seven years in, you're wondering to yourself, is there a better job? And maybe there is. Maybe there is. The point I'm making is, couldn't you enjoy the job that you presently have? Let's think about it in terms of our marriage. If you are married, then you might understand this dynamic that I experienced with my wife, Katie. You see, when Katie and I got married, no two people in all of the world or even universe loved each other to the depths and degree that we did. And and we were never going to argue because, you know, we complimented one another so well. And then we committed to vows and we started living together day after day and reality set in. It turns out, can you imagine this, that Katie doesn't make me feel the way that I want to feel every day. How dare she? The ideal, I think, disrupts our appreciation of the real when it comes to our spiritual community. You see, this morning, we're going to be taking a look at the community of a leader. And I want you to understand this. Transformative leaders know that real transformation requires relationships or community. Our community begins with a life-giving, vital relationship, our connection to the God of the universe. But when I come into a relationship with the God of the universe, he also places me into a dynamic human family, a community called the local church. I don't know about you, but I have some ideals when it comes to all of you. And I would imagine that you have some ideals when it comes to us. And I would even go out on a limb and say that we rarely measure up to one another's ideals. But here's the thing. Here's what we're going to see. I'll let you know the big idea right away. Jesus isn't interested in building your ideal. He's too busy building his ideal. So let's start there. Let's take a look at some ecclesiology. Now, ecclesiology means the study of the church. And as you look through your Bible, there are lots of passages that help us to understand how the church came into existence, what the church is supposed to look like, why the church exists in the first place. So let's begin with looking at the fact that Jesus is the one who called the church into existence. In fact, we see this most clearly in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when Jesus says something very pivotal to Peter. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, in that passage, when Jesus talks about the rock, he's referring to the good confession that Peter has just made. You see, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Peter looked at Jesus and he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that is the confession of the church. Everything about the church is built on that. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He came to this earth. He died in our place. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He rose again from the, th- the dead on the third day, and by rising from the dead, conquered sin and death. That's the confession of the church. Every single person who comes into the church who is a true member of the body of Christ has believed that confession. In fact, if we look over at Ephesians 2 and 3, Paul will make very similar points about how people come into the church You see, in verse 1 of Ephesians 2, Paul says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What does that mean? Well, it means that we had no relationship with God. We were completely separated from our relationship with God. But then God did something. Verse 5, God made us alive together in Christ. You see, with the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, with our faith in him, we were made alive. Once dead, now alive. And then we see it's all about grace. In verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, and not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now here's the second thing I want you to see about the church. You see, some of us think that the gospel kind of begins and ends with us coming into a relationship with God. It just kind of stops there. It's me and Jesus. That's it. But what we see in the scriptures, particularly Ephesians 2 and 3, is that the gospel also places us into a new community, a new set of relationships. Now, over the Christmas season, we were in a series called Christmas on Lockdown, and we looked at how because Jesus came, he unified two very disparate groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. We saw that division is a normal, sinful tendency of human beings. But because of the gospel, we have a commonality in Christ that brings us together. Well, Paul says the same thing. He said, God abolished the dividing wall of hostility. This is Ephesians 2 again. Okay, now let's ask another question. What's God's purpose in that? What's the big deal about bringing divided people together into one body? Well, Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, and he says that God's intent was that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you know what we do Sunday after Sunday when we come together in unity centered around the gospel? We make the invisible God visible for people. I've said it like this before. When Christians come together in unity, it is like throwing paint on the invisible man. People can see and savor and experience the living God of the universe which leads me to another big, important point when it comes to our ecclesiology. Church community is not for the sake of community itself. As some of us, when we think about church community, it's all about like bro and sister time. We're just coming together and we're just experiencing life together and we're, we're doing life together. You know, that, that phrase or expression. But I have to tell you, that's not the main point. The point... The substance of it all is God. The church exists to bring glory to God. That's why when you look over at our mission statement, it does not begin with transformation. It does not begin with the relationships of the church. It begins with, say it with me, worship. Because we worship an invisible, immortal, all-wise Sovereign God, who dwells in inapproachable light, with whom no eye has ever seen or can see, 1 Timothy 6.6. We worship this God. We come together to hear His word, to pray to Him, to sing to Him, to celebrate Him. One author says it like this. The point is not the community. The point is God. Community is merely the effect Our new society is not a mutual admiration society, but a shared admiration society. Our affection for each other is derivative. It derives from our worship of God, a God who has saved us from millions of different communities to become one family. That's what it's all about. So when I come into the church, I don't identify myself mostly around what my politics are or what my ethnic background is or my family of origin or even like some of the superficial things where people identify themselves like I'm a gamer or I'm a weightlifter or an athlete or something along those lines. No, we are all one in Christ. We're Christians and that is what draws us together. And that's what helps us to look like heaven, where people come together from every tribe, tongue, language, and people. Church, that's ecclesiology right there. Jesus called the church to exist. The church comes together around the commonality of the gospel and unified fashion. And our purpose is to bring glory to God. Now let's ask the question, Why doesn't the church always look like the ideal? You think if Jesus would call the church together that the church would always look like his ideal. But I have to tell you, I think there are some modern tendencies that break down Jesus' ideal for the church. What could those be? Well, I think it centers around one common tendency. And let me make a couple of statements that might help us to understand this tendency. Have you ever heard someone searching for a church and say something along the lines of, I am looking for the right fit? Now, what does fit mean? Well for a lot of different people, it means a lot of different things. It might have something to do with music style, or theological style, or preaching style, or even architectural style, like what the building looks like, or the program style. Do they have kids' programs that meet the needs of my kids? Or even the kind of people that are in the church. Now, here's what we're doing when we center our decision to attend a church all around fit. We're saying that the church needs to fit my ideal. When I walk through the doors, this place should conform or change around me. I wonder if we're going to make a quick aside here, just a thought. That's why we might be seeing so many moral failures among evangelical Christian leaders. Hmm. You mean if churches are mostly catering to fit, that they're not going to raise up the right kind of leaders, that they might just be raising up leaders who are good speakers or leaders who are highly relational or momentum makers? Now, what is curiously missing from the list? Well, what about humility or faithfulness or love of God or spirituality? Where are all those things? Hmm. Well, they don't tend to line up with fit categories, do they? Let me, let me make another statement. This one sounds a little more spiritual. How is this church growing me? How is this church growing me? Bible scholar Gordon Fee notes that a Christianity that focuses too much on the individual journey, the question, how is this growing me, uh, easily becomes, now he has some strong words here, so put on your steel toe boots, sourly narcissistic, he says, and crowds out openness to the Spirit himself. Hmm. You know, I agree with that. I, I was just like that when I was going to through seminary for a season, and the, the professors, they beat it out of me. <laughs> you see, when you're going through seminary, you're studying deep theology and the Bible, and you're analyzing Hebrew passages and Greek passages. And then you walk into church settings like a Sunday school classroom or the preacher who's preaching on Sunday morning, who's doing all the work of the church and preparing a sermon for Sunday morning, and you're sitting there as they're unpacking that sermon week after week, picking them apart, having roast preacher over points of minutiae. Or you're doing it to the Sunday school teachers, whatever it is. You know, because I don't really like the theology that they expressed in that moment. Now, don't hear me wrongly. I love theology. Very important. But it's like tertiary matters that I'm talking about here. Not like the core, like the gospel and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity and those kind of things. Or their preaching style. I didn't like how they unpacked that passage. They didn't answer that specific question that I had in my mind that week. You know what happened? I walked into one of my classes, and the seminary professor knew exactly what we were like. He just had us pinned down, and he said, you know what, I know what you guys are doing. You're walking into churches, and you are picking apart the leaders, and and you're just thinking that you're so superior to them in your theological understanding and Bible study. Well, I want you to flip your Bibles and start applying it just a moment with me. Okay? Okay. So we turn the Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. And then he reads, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. And then he said, If you ever walk into a church on a Sunday morning when the Word of God is being opened and you say to yourself, I got nothing from that, you're messed up. Okay, every time the Word of God is being opened, every time it is being expounded, the Spirit has something for you to say. And here's another thing. It's not all about you. Sometimes the Spirit needs to say something to someone else in the room. I mean, I repented right there in my chair. I was so humbled Here I've been going to church and missing the blessing of the Spirit for a year. You want to know what the common thread is now between the the fit question and the is-this-growing-me question? It is a modern worldview tendency called individualism. Unlike any other time in human history, we tend to analyze the worthiness of things according to our own individual needs or ideals. Now let me offer a different ideal for a moment. What if committing to a local church as a one a better or a for better or worse family and not because you know there's another church that popped up that's really cool and the preacher seems cooler than the previous preacher. What if committing to that church is Jesus's ideal? What if Jesus' ideal is not about the church fitting my needs, but actually, when I come into the local church, I fit into the local church. Their mission, their vision, their values. Where I find my way in that local church and ask, what can I do to strengthen this place and become a participating part of the family? Now, I know that's a countercultural way of looking at it. But remember... Jesus' entire message is countercultural. Like, you're supposed to love your enemies? Really, Jesus? You're supposed to love those oddballs that, you know, show up to this place week after week who are totally different from, are you serious, Jesus? Yes, he's very serious. Here's what we come to find out. Transformative leaders know that there is something special about this countercultural way. Take a look now at Ephesians 2 19 to 22, and we're going to see theologically that Jesus is building something beautiful through this countercultural church. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So let's take a look at that biblical image of the stones being built together into a dwelling place for God. Now, author and pastor Brett McCracken notes this. (laughs) He notes that a dwelling place requires not one big stone, but many pieces of stone interlocked and fortified together. It's not that the stones must lose their individuality or their unique texture. In fact, when you look at the image, you're not to envision like a bunch of uniform bricks that all fit together or prefabricated concrete. No, he says it's just that only together... Do individual stones achieve the structural purpose of becoming the household of God? So here's what we come to realize as we look at all of this. When fully appreciated, the real is better than my ideal. I am so glad that Katie is not the living manifestation of my imagination, I mean, can you imagine if 22-year-old Rob was deciding what Katie needed to be like and look like for the rest of her life? That would not be a good thing. I was a knucklehead back then. I am so glad that she is not my imaginative wife, that she is who she is. And It turns out that if we were to walk into a church and coerce that place to become our ideal, we would end up hating it. But when we walk into that place and it's Jesus' ideal and we find our way into that ideal, we learn to love it. In fact, let's move beyond the negative question. Why are we trending away from Jesus' ideal? And let's talk positively now. What does Jesus intend to do through a healthy, vibrant, local group of transformative leaders in faithful church community. What's his point? What does he want to do in and through us? Well, we see his purpose in the Great Commission again. Let's look at that all over again. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So it's here in the Great Commission that I would submit to you that we see two great purposes for the local church, one being evangelism, the other being discipleship. Now, of course, discipleship is the broad umbrella category, but if we're going to think in terms of evangelism and discipleship, we're thinking of people before they come to Christ and then what happens after people come to Christ as they grow in maturity to look like Jesus. So, you have that first part of the Great Commission, which is people are being baptized. That's evangelism. So, vibrant, healthy church community fuels evangelism. Where do we see that in the Bible? Well, a lot of places. But John 13, 35 in particular Jesus says here, by this people will know that you are my disciples. If you build a megachurch complex with a beautiful library and all kinds of nichey, beautiful, awesome spaces, then they'll know you're my disciples. No, that's not what he said. He, he also didn't say that they will know you're my disciples if you're always on the leading edge and the first to speak out for that social justice matter. Nope, he didn't say that either. No, he said, they'll know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It turns out that the most destructive thing we can do for the gospel is to fight over things that don't matter as a church. And what does that love look like? What's the the example of that love? Well, it's not that ethereal, wishy-washy love where I love someone one day, but the next I decide that we really weren't soulmates after all. Not that kind of love. No, we're talking about a love that Jesus demonstrated. He set the standard. In verse 34, he says, As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Well, What does that love look like? Well, it looks like God becoming man. God dwelling among us. It looks like the depths of the cross. It looks like heaven reaching down to earth. That kind of love. In fact, the Apostle John said it like this. He said, We love because he first loved. He showed us. About a year ago, I was having a lunch with Harry, and he brought this passage to life for me. He was talking about when he was pastoring in a local church, and there was a moral failure between two individuals from two different families within the church. And they had come, and, and it was very public after a while. People became very aware of what had happened. And they said to the leadership, we, we feel called to repent of this. And so the church gathered a meeting together, and the two individuals stood up before the church, and they just poured out their hearts and repented and cried and, and said they were so sorry for what had happened. And what followed after that was... A massive outpouring of love and restoration and commitment to forgive on the part of the church. You see, love is not... Truces that we make, or we we refuse to talk about things that are difficult. You know, we're talking about something right now that in many local churches can cause division and there's a lot of hurt and, and hang ups with people over what we're talking about right now. But it turns out that God can do beautiful things when we go into the hard stuff together. And you know what ended up happening at the end of this meeting? A Jewish man who was married to one of the members of the church, stood up, he was standing in the front row, and he said, you know, I came here to be a contrarian to all that was about to happen. I heard the story, and I was getting all revved up, and I was here to do battle on behalf of these people. But after everything I've seen, I believe that Jesus is real now. I'm ready to put my faith in Him. He trusted Christ right then and there. Church, one of the most powerful tools that we have for evangelism is our unity, our love. When people see that, they see something much different than what they see out in the world. Now let's quickly take a look at a second aspect of the Great Commission. Remember, it's discipl- or baptizing them, and now we're looking at teaching them to obey. You see, vibrant, healthy church community life produces mature disciples. We'll see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 14. Paul says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, if you're looking at these verses, verse 13 tells us that church community is designed to do something. It's designed to produce mature what? Manhood. What is that? mature manhood mean well he elaborates on it doesn't he he says that mature manhood is essentially the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so if we were going to say that a little more simply mature manhood means you look more like Jesus day after day you start looking like him you become that special limited edition version of Jesus that only you were designed to become now, here's what I find so remarkable about this passage, and this, this is my soapbox, so I'm just going to have to deal with it for a moment, okay? I look at this passage, and I see nowhere on the pastor's job description that my job is to be doing all of the ministry, okay? In fact, I would love it if congregations told pastors, get out of our job description, If the pastor's always showing up to the hospital, if the pastor's always the one who's taking care of the needs in the community, if the pastor's always the one doing all the teaching in the church, if the pastor's doing everything, he is way up in your job description. That's not a good thing. No, it tells us in the passage that the pastor's job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And what's the result when the congregation becomes the focus of the ministry? When the congregation comes into focus, the church is built up. They become that ideal that Jesus intended us to become. Nothing grows us like Holy Spirit cultivated community. I I want us to see a couple of ways that this Holy Spirit community works. Let's look at community at work. The first is that I want you to understand that the Spirit uses the hard relational dynamics of community to grow you. Okay, let that one sink in for a moment. If you leave a church family when the going gets tough, you may be leaving just when growth is optimum. Now, little bit of nuance here, right? Because I know Christians who have left churches where they've been incredibly hurt. They tried everything possible to make it work. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that I've seen far more examples of people who have left prematurely, and that's not good. Look, you can't practice the deeper aspects of love until you really get to know one another. It's great when you first walk into a church. I mean, it is fabulous. If the church is welcoming, if they have any hospitality presence, you're walking in there and it's all high fives and hugs as you walk into that place, double guns to people. It's awesome. And everybody's got their mask up and no one's sharing anything real about themselves. Now, fast forward the tape five to seven years later, the masks start coming down. And I am open and susceptible to experiencing hard relational things like being slighted, being forgotten, hurt, offended, even angered. You finally reached a level of relational intimacy where those things can happen. And now, and only now, five to seven years into these relationships, can you start applying Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, where Paul says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Really, Paul? Ouch. Does I have to do that? Yes, Because as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Think about what happens if I leave before that five to seven year period. I start all over again from square one with a new community. I'm double gunning and and the masks are all up. And I never get to Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 to 14. I need to get there. Because it's in that space where Jesus really grows me. It makes me more humble. It helps me to start putting others' needs before my own needs. Second, the Spirit uses Christian community to strengthen our personal faith. You see, when you and I are tempted to throw in the towel, one author says, or we're tempted to believe the world's lies, we come to church And we see other Christians, and it reminds us that God's truth is perfect. He says, repeat that return to faith after a moment of doubt or temptation a dozen times over, and you have the typical week in the life of a believer. Repeat it a hundred times, and you have a faithful week in the life of a church. Repeat it a million times over, and the gospel is preserved to the next generation. That's why Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 25, puts such a high premium on community. It says that we're to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Well, what helps me to do that? What well, says in verse 24, we stir one another up to love and good works. That's why the Bible says, don't neglect meeting together because when i neglect meeting together i put myself in a space where i might i might fall away because i don't have anyone helping me to move forward and to continue along in the journey now we might be asking the question, well, why do I got to put myself in the community called the church? I mean, why can't I just join a Christian run club or, you know, all those friends that I have where we talk the same kind of lingo and we're all millennials together and we just love being together and, again, doing life together? Why do I, I got to go to the church? Well, I, got, I, I don't have all the answers to that. It's the master's plan. It's not my plan, Right? But I think I think as I look at Jesus' strategy that it turns out that he probably has some really good things for me in this. Like he probably wants single women to be around young moms sometimes. Even if that single woman has no intention of ever marrying. Or to be around a widow. Or, or for the widow to be around the single person. It, it just works together in the life of the local church. He sometimes probably wants... 20 somethings hanging out with 80 somethings. He wants black Christians singing the gospel with white Christians. He wants those who are not going through suffering and have no idea of what it's like to go through suffering to watch others endure suffering well. He wants the rich to sometimes sit under the teaching of the poor, but he certainly wants them working side by side together for the sake of the gospel. You see, Again, it's all upside down. But when we see it, when we savor it, when we embrace it, that's when optimum growth happens. I want to close with a statement from C.S. Lewis. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Now, I like that because when I walk with Jesus, I got to tell you, there's a lot about this faith that makes me uncomfortable, okay? Um, All those mandates that Jesus has, like go out and share me and tell people about me, and all of those things make me uncomfortable. You want to know what makes me most uncomfortable, though, is like you guys, the church community. And I'm sure I make you uncomfortable too. I mean, think about it: like standing around in a circle with someone holding their sweaty hand and praying together. It's uncomfortable. Or, you know, when you've been in church worship services and that individual just like spontaneously pops up in the middle of a song, and everyone else is sitting around, and then you're looking, you're like, oh gosh, I better stand up right now, or else I'll be left out, you know? All of those things make us uncomfortable. But It's not about me. The community seldom, if ever, will look like my ideal, and I'm glad. Because it's growing degree by degree to look like his ideal. Church, do you want to grow to become a transformative leader this year? Do you want to go into this vision with us? Go deeper into the community of this church. We need you. You need us. We're better together. Let's bow our heads, and let's ask God for his help as we do that. Lord, I thank you for this look at ecclesiology this morning, the church, the place that you, the people that you've called together to represent you here on this earth, to forward your mission. I pray, Lord, that we would see the value and the beauty of the community that you're building right here in Osterville. I know sometimes we let one another's ideals down, Lord. I know we do, but I'm glad we do because I want us to become your ideal. I want us to be that people who look like heaven, the people that are singing to Jesus from every tribe, tongue, people, and language. Grow us degree by degree to look like that,